0: Uh, Well, I want to invite you to open up to Mark chapter 13, Mark chapter 13. We've been going through Mark for a while now, we're now in chapter 13, and in this chapter you are um, in for a treat. This is a chapter that's fascinated so many for so long, even me as a kid. When I was a child, before I really got serious about reading my Bible, um, I had this old old Bible with illustrations that my grandfather had given me, and I remember as a kid cracking it open and finding Mark 13, Matthew 24, Luke 21 passages that were about the end of the world, and reading them because I was so fascinated about end times. I had no idea what it meant, but it sounded incredible, and it had my attention. How do you think about the end of the world? Do you ever think about the end of the world? If you could get a glimpse of the end of the world, how might it shape the way you live? This is what happened in the text we're about to read and and look at and study, was that the disciples were actually given a glimpse into their own futures. Something very specific, uh, specific ways in which the the, the, what they would go through, what they would have to face, what was coming, uh, disasters, tribulations that they were going to face, things that would happen to them in their lifetime. And I wonder what that would make, what kind of impact that would make on your life, if suddenly you were able to see into your life's future, if you were to know what kind of tribulations you were about to go through, what kind of uh, tragedies you might experience, what kind of difficulties that you would face in the coming years ahead, how might it affect you? This is a study that we're about to look at about the future, where Jesus actually begins to talk about things that have not yet happened yet. He is clearly divine based on his full and complete grasp of the certainty, or, uh, the certainty of the future. He has total knowledge of all things that are going to happen, and now he begins to reveal some of these things to his disciples, who are much like you and me, have no idea what's going to happen in five minutes. Jesus begins to tear away a veil of sorts and show them what will happen in the future. And so we enter into a section of Scripture where scholars and preachers and pastors have studied for years and years and years, and just about none of them can agree on what is meant in this chapter. There are many different views, and it has caused the study of end times to be a little bit divisive at times. That people take certain stances and they can be very clear on what they believe about that stance... And then call everyone who disagrees with them entirely wrong and maybe even foolish and unreasonable and irrational for holding a different view. Well, I want to read through this text and I want to study it together. And I want to let you know that this is some difficult stuff. There's a challenge here. And I'm going to present to you what I think Jesus is talking about in these verses and hopefully, as we study it, the, the big point that is meant by Jesus and how it's meant to impact the disciples who were hearing this for the first time will become pretty clear, and it'll actually impact our own lives and how we think about how we should live. Um, we, we do need to study this. Now, there's some of us that, like, love end times, and sometimes people can get a little too crazy about end times, actually knew someone who wrote a book, got published, and was making the claim that Donald Trump was the Antichrist. He was certain about it. And I'm sure you heard things online, you know. I think every president in my lifetime has been called the Antichrist, right? Like everyone's trying to pinpoint, you know, they got six letters in their first name and six letters in their middle name and six letters in their last name, 666, six, 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 you know. So you get these these views they are a little too crazy and and they're trying to pinpoint every political leader and every world event and they're trying to make it match and and try to you know tell the future i actually um uh, the, our previous pastor from simi valley pastor jordan baker his grandfather you might recognize his name was harold camping who predicted that the world would end in 2011 uh it didn't um it didn't and we're all here but we've seen these things get taken to extremes. And then there's another extreme. And the extreme is that we just don't care. Like, we just don't study it. We don't really concern ourselves with what might happen in the future. I've heard people say, well, I'm not a pre-millennial. I'm not an non I'm not a post-millennial. I am a pan-millennial. It'll all pan out in the end. That's my, that's my view on the millennial kingdom. It'll all just pan out in the end. I don't know how it's going to, but I am under the conviction that if it's in the Bible, we should study it, we should wrestle with it, we should seek understanding, and we should do so humbly, trying to understand what the Lord intends for us to know, not so that we can argue with each other, but that we might be shaped into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ our Lord. And so this is what we're going to aim to do, and I'm going to point to you. And approach this in a little bit of a unique way, we're going to tackle the entire chapter of Mark 13. Uh, it, was in, it was given to the disciples in one discourse. It is the longest discourse that we have from Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, and it is all about the future, uh, the future, teaching the disciples what is going to happen. And as we go through this whole section, I don't know if all your questions will be answered, but I do think uh, we're going to do our best to stick to the text to study the text, to draw out from the context the meaning of the verses in the way that I believe the disciples would have understood these verses as they came out of Jesus' mouth. And as we work through it, I hope it will engender in us a desire to be alert and to be watchful and to be faithful to our Lord. Let's set it up first. You're in Mark 13, okay? By the way, if you don't have a Bible open, please do so. It'll be so much easier for you to follow as we work through the text. Mark chapter 13, let's just get our bearings here. Verse 1 and 2, let's read those. It says, And as he, that's Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Okay, so here's the context All day Tuesday, Jesus has been teaching in Jerusalem's temple, a glorious building. They've been in the temple courts. They've faced off with just about every Jewish leader coming to challenge and even to be antagonistic against Jesus. And Jesus has been answering them and teaching them and correcting them and all of these things. And then they're leaving. It's probably evening now. It's the end of the day. They're walking out. The sun is setting. Uh, There outside of Jerusalem, and there one of the disciples says, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. He uh, pauses and reflects on the majesty of this building, this temple. And it truly was a magnificent edifice. It was built by Herod. The first temple was built by Solomon. The second temple was built by Zerubbabel. Later, after Solomon's had already been destroyed. And much later, Herod, actually, had built this temple. He had rebuilt it for his own glory. And he had built it in a magnificent way. And the stones that are being referred to here were incredible, incredible. Feats of engineering to get them one on top of another to build this thing. They were massive. And not only were they huge, they were overlaid with gold. And so if you're leaving the temple at the time of day when they would have been leaving the temple, the sunlight would have gleamed off the gold. The temple would have looked like a blaze of glorious light. It would have been an awesome sight as they're leaving after a long day of teaching. Look, teacher, what wonderful stones. What wonderful buildings. Glorious. But look at Jesus' response. He's not as impressed as they are. As you, if you recall, his time in the temple, he has been confronted again and again and again. He's faced nothing but opposition from those who are supposed to be representing the leadership of Israel He's not as happy with the place. He's seen how they've been exploiting even the poorest of the poor, the widows. And Jesus' response is not exuberant praise of the place. Look at what he says. Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. It probably caught them off guard. It's all coming down, Jesus says. It's all coming down, and this would have been incredible to believe because not only was the building itself apparently or seemingly impregnable, it was an amazingly strong structure to imagine it crumbling to the dirt would have been unfathomable by the disciples, but also, theologically, this is the center of the worship of Israel. How could the temple be destroyed? Remember how hard the disciples had understanding that Jesus was going to die. They just Remember, they just can't get this through their thick skulls. Jesus keeps saying, I'm going to die. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. They just can't get it. Well, I think they're going to have just the hardest time thinking about how this temple is going down. Because, hey, Jesus, I thought you were supposed to be the Messiah. I thought you're supposed to be the king that sets up the kingdom. And now the very place where worship is supposed to occur, the temple, you're saying that it's going to be destroyed and Jerusalem's coming down. That there's not going to be a single stone left upon another. It's all coming down. The buildings, plural, are being destroyed. Jerusalem will be razed to the ground. They're out there. And it says there now in verse 3, they're they're leaving. It says he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. So they get a little bit of distance from the temple. They're able to look back on it. And I think that the the disciples are just stewing on what has just been said. And it says that Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, so four of them, ask him privately. And this is what's going to set us up to understand the whole point, the whole section here. It says... They had a question for him. And if you look closely, it's actually two questions that they ask Jesus. Verse 4, tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? When is a question of timing? And what are the signs? What will be the signs, the visible manifestations that alert us to the coming of the destruction of Jerusalem? Now, what is critical to us interpreting this, you want to follow this, is to understand that question right there. What are they asking about? What are they asking about? They're asking about when will the temple be destroyed? And what will be the signs that accompany the coming destruction of the temple? It is about the destruction of Jerusalem's temple. That is the context, that is the answer that is being given. And from verses 5 to 27, a big chunk, Jesus answers those two questions by telling them about certain things that are not signs and certain a certain specific thing that is a sign and then even forward looking all the way to the end where he will return in glory. That is what we'll see. Now, I want you to skip to the end real quick because this will help us. We're kind of bookending it, and then we're going to do this like a sandwich, all right? We're getting the bread out first. We're getting the bookends first. We're going to get both sides first, and then we'll get the meat in the middle, and I think it'll all make more sense when we do that. Okay, so look at verse 28 now. Turn ahead to verse 28. This is after he has given his answer to those questions. He is, has already given them what, or when and what, and now he wants to draw out the lesson for them, okay? So I want us to have this in our minds as we work through the answer to the question. Verse 28, it says, from the fig tree learn its lesson. Uh, you can imagine there was just a fig tree out there as there were in Israel in these days, and he says, I want you to see this, and I want to teach you something from it. As soon as its branch becomes tender, and puts out its leaves, you know that summer's near. Anyone who in Israel had observed a fig tree would know that there's a certain sign that the fig tree gives when it's about to be summer. So just as you can observe a fig tree and you know it's about to be summer, so you can observe the signs I'm telling you about and know that the destruction of the temple is about to come. That's what he's saying. Verse 29, So also when you see these things taking place, You know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Which I think means that the generation that Jesus is talking to, the disciples themselves, will see the signs that he has just described that they will see the signs that the coming destruction of the temple will happen in their generation that these disciples will see it. How long is a generation? About 40 years. This generation will not pass away. They'll see it take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus is saying my words are more certain than heaven and earth. My words are more certain than heaven and earth. And earth. Believe Jesus Christ. He is spoken. He has spoken about the future. It will come to pass. And then in verse 32 to 35, he kind of gives the lesson for the disciples and how they ought to live in light of the future that Jesus has just told them about. Now, watch this. Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he suddenly come or come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Okay, so that right there is the point of the whole discourse. Be alert, stay awake, be on guard. In fact, if you were to go back and when we read it, you're going to notice that those words come up again and again. Look back at verse 9. Be on your guard. Verse 23, but be on guard. Verse 33, be on guard, keep awake. Verse 35, therefore stay awake. Verse 37, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. The point of the whole discourse, the reason Jesus tells them the future, is not that they would have debates about eschatological figures. Eschatological figures. The point is that the knowledge of the future would engender in them a spiritual alertness, that it would arouse them from spiritual slumber, that spiritual drowsiness that we're all tempted to drift into would be banished, that they would wake up that their eyes would be wide open to what's happening in the world, that they would recognize the whole world will soon come to an end, and that they would live with a certain zeal and fervor and passion and awareness for the glory of God. And it is many times in our own lives that we lose sight of the end of all time, and we lose sight of what's happening in the future, that we begin to slink into a spiritual slumber. Do you live with a spiritual alertness? Are you spiritually drowsy? I wonder if anyone here is spiritually drowsy and whether part of your problem comes is you've never sniffed the smelling salts by thinking of the end of the world. I'm serious. Thinking of the end of the world wakes you up. And when Jesus starts talking about the future, immediate future, and even distant future in this text, his goal is that his disciples would be awake. Church, that's our goal this morning. That in reading this, we would be roused, awakened from spiritual drowsiness, that our perspective would be sharpened on what matters because we know the future. This is not an easy text. I already already mentioned it. I'm going to divide it up into three sections. We're going to look at Jesus' answer now. So hopefully you have the whole context, the question that was asked, the point of the whole discourse. Now we're going to work through the meat of it, and we're going to break it up into three sections where Jesus gives the answer to the timing and the signs of the destruction of the temple. And he gives them a warning, and you'll see a warning, warnings in verses 5 to 13, and he gives a sign. Specific sign for them in verses 14 to 23. And then he describes the Savior in verses 24 to 27. Let's first look at the warning that Jesus has for his disciples. When will these things be, they ask? And what will be the sign that these things are about to be accomplished? When and what? When will Jerusalem be destroyed? You're telling me this great, grandiose temple is coming down. How do I know it's about to happen? When will it happen? Jesus begins to warn them. Before specifically answering this question, he wants to warn them uh, first. First, he warns them about deception. Verses 5 and 6. You see that there. Jesus begins, it says in verse 5, he began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. In verses 21 to 22, he reiterates the same thing, except he adds, in addition to people coming and calling themselves the Messiah, there will also be false prophets and false Christs who do false signs and wonders. There will be people who come in the name of Christ, trying to be Christ, trying to claim the role of Messiah in Jesus' is warning, his disciples, that prior to the destruction of the temple, there will be false Messiahs. Don't listen to them. This is actually all historical and happened and Jesus predicted this with startling accuracy that many people during this time began to claim to be the Messiah because the Jews were under the Roman oppressive forces and they wanted to be out from it and many Jews led uprising and they said that they would conquer Rome. One man in particular named Judas called Judas of Galilee, got a group of about 400 people who believed that he was the Messiah. He convinced them that he was the Christ, led an uprising against Rome, and eventually was stamped out. But the disciples were warned, hey, listen, don't get caught up in these false messiahs. I am going to die, rise, and ascend into heaven, and I'm going to be gone from you, and I don't want you to think that some other guy is the Messiah. Don't get caught up in that. He warns them about deception and being caught up by false leaders. Secondly, he warns them about distraction. Look at verses 7 and 8. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. In other words, this is not the signs. You're going to think that maybe wars are the signs that the destruction's about to come. Well, that's just going to happen. Wars and rumors of wars. Don't be alarmed. That just happens. The end's not let yet. Those things have happened in all places, in all times, in all periods of history. That doesn't necessitate. It's necessitate the end being there. Verse 8, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places. And there will be famines. And these are but the beginnings of the birth pains. What he's saying is before the destruction of the temple, there are going to be wars, rumors of wars. Don't be alarmed. That doesn't mean it's happening just yet. The nations rise against nations, kingdoms against kingdoms. It always happens. Earthquakes happen. Famines happen. And in fact, they all did. Historically, you can go back and you can see significant earthquakes, political upheavals, nations fighting against nations, all this stuff was happening. Jesus is telling them this is not the sign. These are not the signs that you need to be looking out for for the destruction of the temple. These are just the beginnings of the birth pains, which will lead into a period of further tribulation. It's not the sign. Don't be distracted by those things. Don't get caught up in those things. Don't think that those things are some signs that you've got to look out for. No, that's not, what he's, that's not what is the sign. He has a third warning uh, that we're going to call distress. So first he's going, don't get caught up into these false messiahs. And then he says, don't get caught up into all these distractions thinking they're the signs. It's not the signs. And then he gets even more personal. He says, there's going to be distress. In other words, there's going to be persecution. Not only all these other things are going to, uh, they're they're just happening because they always do. They're they're not the signs. What's going to happen prior to the destruction of the temple is that you are going to face distress. Look at verse 9. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Do you imagine hearing this? That Jesus is talking about a future destruction of the temple, and he says, before it happens, here's what you need to know. You're going to be arrested. You're going to be taken up to stand before some of the most powerful men you know. You're going to be beaten in the very synagogues where God is supposed to be worshipped. You're going to stand before governors and kings. And listen, this is why you're going to do it, Jesus says. You're going to do this because you're going to bear witness to them. (laughs) I've called you to suffer and I've called you to stand before kings and governors and people and councils and what you're going to do in those times. I want you to bear witness to who I am. You're going to suffer. You're going to experience pain. You're going to get beaten up by the authorities. That's what I've called you to do. And when you do that, you're going to bear witness to them all. Verse 10 indicates a little glimmer of hope that even while they're being beat up and persecuted, facing the distress that comes prior to the destruction of the temple, verse 10 says, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And what you actually see is this actually became very much being fulfilled in Acts when the nations there in Pentecost are all gathered and Peter preaches the gospel and several different types of people get saved, Jews and Gentiles through the book of Acts, begin to hear the gospel, repent and believe. So that even to the point in Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes that the gospel is bearing fruit among the whole world. That even the the suffering that these disciples are about to face, they're listening to Jesus say, you're going to get beaten up. You're going to be arrested. And yet, this gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. It's going to start with you. You, in the midst of your suffering, are going to be the tool that God uses to bring the gospel to the nations. You're going to be hated. You're going to be abused. Look at verse 11. But there's more hope. The, 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 you're, you're called to bear witness. Verse 11 says, when they bring you on trial and deliver you over, don't be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Say, listen, guys, it's going to be hard. <laughs> and if you start worrying now about what do I say in the moment when I'm brought before the governor? You know, what am I supposed to say when I'm, I've just been beaten up and I'm brought before the council and they want me to talk about what I've been doing? They want me to give an account for why I'm doing what I'm doing? Jesus, don't worry right now, okay? Because the Spirit will help you in that moment to bear witness. And have you read the book of Acts? You know, you think of Stephen standing up and bearing witness to the gospel and letting all the Jews hear the good news of salvation even while they rise up to kill him. Even the text says there in, in Acts 7, Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, and he spoke in the power of the Spirit and presented the gospel to the very people who would kill him. This promise given to the disciples that in the moment of their suffering they would be empowered by the Spirit to speak must have been so nourishing to them through their, in their souls as they went on to spread the gospel after these moments. Verse 12 indicates how bad the time will get prior to the destruction of the temple. Brothers going to be delivering brother over to death. We talk about a family feud. Brothers trying to get their own brothers killed. Father, his child. Could you imagine? Children rising against parents and having them put to death. But you will be hated and you will be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved. It's going to be bad for you. It's going to be bad all around. As it gets closer to the destruction of the temple, it's going to get really, really hard. Even families are going to be split down the middle. And listen, verse 13, you will be hated, but you must endure. You must endure to the end by faith. Jesus is encouraging them to stick through it in the difficulty. They know the suffering is going to come now. They've heard it, and they know the Spirit will be with them in it. They know that they're not going to be abandoned, and they know that the gospel must be proclaimed. And they know they must endure, but they know it will be hard. Now, it's interesting that they, these disciples, get a very specific look into what their next 40 years look like. Now, we don't get the exact same things, do we? What your life will look like and the things you'll face in the next 40 years. But we do have generalities, don't we? 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Part of the very introduction to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 is, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven even harkens back to the prophets who were always persecuted who always died for the sake of standing up for the truth and says that this is part and parcel of following Jesus Christ and if you think that our world is becoming more tolerant of Christians may I invite you to wake up Do you think things are going to be easier? That churches are going to have pressure relieved from them? Or will the pressure increase? The hostility grow? I would assume the latter. And just as the disciples were said, listen, you're going to be cared for. Listen, the Spirit's with you. Listen, the gospel's going to continue to advance. You must endure. And church, the message I say to you, we must endure. We will not bow down to the world's ideologies, and we will not be cowards in the midst of the mission that we've been given. We will stand up. We will move forward. We will face suffering if necessary, and we will bear witness to Jesus Christ. That's what we will do. That's what all the faithful have always done. That's what the disciples had to do. We will endure to the end by the grace of God. But they were warned. They were warned. Now, I want to highlight something real quick, verse 10. It says the gospel must be first proclaimed to all nations. And I want to just highlight the effectiveness of that promise up to today. That here across the world, a church gathers in the name of Jesus Christ to proclaim the gospel. Isn't that amazing? That what Jesus predicted would happen began happening at the moment that these disciples began following him, filled with the Spirit the day of Pentecost and preaching the gospel. And that faithful gospel proclamation has come all the way around the world to meet us this very morning. And that if you're not a believer and you happen to find yourself this morning, can I tell you that you're here on purpose? That God wants you to hear the gospel That God wants you to know that you are a sinner, that you have deserved His judgment, but that God in His amazing love and mercy has provided salvation from the judgment that is to come through His own Son, Jesus Christ. That Jesus lived the life you could never live and then voluntarily laid His life down on the cross to die to pay for the sins of all who would ever turn and trust in Him. And that if you, though a great sinner, though a terrible sinner, If you are a sinner and you know you're a sinner and you know you need forgiveness, that you can turn from sin, cry out to Jesus Christ for mercy, and receive the forgiveness you need. You could do that right now. And it would be another testimony to the fact that Jesus is accurate in telling the future that the nations will hear the gospel. Because you this morning have heard the gospel. Repent and believe if you have not repented and believe, and receive the free gift of God's grace. The disciples were warned of these things, that they would happen and they were supposed to live a certain way. But remember, those warnings were not the sign. Remember, the sign that they were asking for was, what's going to be accompanying the destruction of the temple? Well, now look in verse 14. Now Jesus begins to describe the sign that the disciples ought to be looking for. Let me read these verses. Verse 14 says, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now what is he talking about? Let's look at this real quick. What is the abomination of desolation? Some of you have heard this before, and you have some idea of what this might be. An abomination, that word is used to describe something that causes disgust, that is a type of sin that is particularly repugnant to God. And desolation refers to barrenness or emptiness. Jesus is referring to some kind of an uniquely repugnant sin that results in barrenness or emptiness he says when you see this thing this abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be Matthew's account makes more clear what is meant by this it says when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place so the place where he's not ought to be where he shouldn't be is the temple itself so we'll put those together when you see the abomination standing in the temple and then he has a warning: Get out of there! Flee! Get out of Judea immediately. Well, what is this abomination of desolation? What's going on here? What what is this sign? The, the people, the disciples, are listening to this, and they're supposed to see this as the sign to get out. Okay, Jesus says, when you see that this specific abomination of desolation, that's the clue. Leave, get out of Judea, run to the mountains because it's going to get bad. Well, what's the sign? What's the sign? What is that? What, what? Well, the abomination of desolation is described in the book of Daniel. It's described, uh, it's a leader who uh, gets a measure of authority and somehow uses his authority to do something sacrilegious in the holy temple. And he does something that disgusts the people and desecrates the temple, And what happened, after the prophecy of Daniel many years later, there was actually an event that very much was like what Daniel was prophesying. A man by the name, a leader, by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, came into the temple in 167 B.C., so this is before Christ's coming, and he went in there, he called himself God, he made an altar for Zeus, And then he sacrificed an unclean animal, which for the Jews would have been a horror. He sacrificed a pig on the altar. And then, after that, went on to oppress Jews. He tried to force them to worship pagan gods. And he slaughtered thousands of the Jewish people. That all happened 200 years before Jesus is talking right here. So it's interesting, then, that Jesus is describing the abomination as something still to come that interesting? What does he mean? I think Luke 21, verse 20 clarifies. It's the parallel passage. Remember, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all kind of writing the same things from different perspectives, and they use a little bit different language sometimes. Well, when Luke is describing the desolation or the abomination of desolation, he uses a different way to describe it. He says that it's when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies flee to the mountains. Okay, so when we put all the pieces together, if you're tracking with me still, I hope you're tracking with me still, what is the abomination of desolation? Well, I think that the abomination of desolation is somehow a pagan ruler desecrates the temple and as part of that, there's a siege of Jerusalem and Jerusalem is being surrounded by armies. The temple is desecrated because pagan armies are coming to attack Jerusalem. And what are they to do when they see the armies around Jerusalem and we see them coming in to do horrible things in the temple? What are they to do? Look down at the text, verse 15. Or let's look at the end of 14. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. You're in the field working. You realize, uh uh-oh, the the armies have surrounded Jerusalem. They're heading to the temple. There's going to be a desecration. Don't even go back home to get your coat. Run. That's what he's saying. Get out immediately. Verse 17 says, Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, it's going to be so bad, it's going to be even harder for those who are pregnant and nursing. Verse 18 says, pray that it may not happen in winter. In other words, this is going to be so bad, it doesn't matter how hard the journey is, get out of Jerusalem now. Leave. If you're nursing a baby and it's hard to pick up and all just go, go anyway. If you're pregnant and it's hard to move through these mountains, get to the hills. Get to the mountains. Get out of Judea because what's about to happen is going to be horrible. It's going to be Awful. Leave immediately. Now, what happened? Did did, did this actually happen historically? The answer is yes. In 70 AD, the Roman commander, soon to be emperor Titus, marched on Jerusalem, led his troops to the Temple Mount, and Titus himself. Entered the temple, and the historian Josephus put it this way that they carried their Roman standards into the temple court, set them up opposite the eastern gate, and there they sacrificed to them with rousing acclamations that hailed Titus as imperator. In other words, they desecrated the temple. Their armies came just as Jesus predicted. They desecrated the temple just as Jesus predicted, and that began a kind of holocaust that the world had never seen. It was awful. Jesus was saying, get out of there for a good reason. Historians say that they began slaughtering Jews so so frequently they were slaughtering 500 Jews a day. They were literally running out of wood to use to kill these Jews. The death toll that many estimates say is around a million, which is incredible for those days And when you compare it to the size of Jerusalem in those days. Jesus says of this time, For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation of the world that God created until now and never will be. I take that to be a hyperbolic figure of speech indicating how horrible and horrendous this period of time would be. D.A. Carson makes the point that if you were to count deaths per capita, even if you compare what happened in those days to what Stalin did or what Hitler did, there has never been a higher death rate. In many places, Jews have been oppressed but some were spared. And the historians say when Titus marched on Jerusalem, no Jews were spared at all. Now let me tell you a historical detail that might be interesting for you to know. Do you ever wonder how many Christians maybe died during the siege of Jerusalem? How many Christian Jews were a part of the slaughter? You know what the answer is? Hardly any. You know why? They had Mark 13 in their Bibles. And they read it. And they believed it. And they got out when the sign came. Not many Christians were there. They got out. I mean, here we see that paying close attention to Scripture is a matter of life and death. Right? Imagine you're a nice Christian Jew doing your devotions and you're at chapter 12. You haven't read 13 yet. You're not aware that the sign... It's supposed to come, and you're going, where are my friends going to? What's going on? they picnic outside? What's going on here? You see, knowing your Bible is a matter of life and death, and in this situation, physically, your actual life is on the line. If you don't know what to do, when the sign comes, and let me tell you, church, is your life built on Scripture? Do you realize that knowing the Word of God is still a matter of life and death, even a matter of eternal life and death. Do you want to be faithful to the Lord? Yes, we all do here. Following Jesus is why we're gathered. We want to know Him and worship Him and be faithful to Him. Listen, know your Bible. Study your Bible. Know what God requires of you. Know how to respond in certain situations. Let the Bible uh, wash over you and cleanse your thinking and guide you and direct you. The matter of life and death, actually, your physical life for these Christians in the first century, it's a matter of our eternal souls to know and believe God's promises to us, isn't it? Know and study the Word of God. Now here we're going to encounter another little tricky part. Look back at verse 19. He says, In those days there will be such tribulation has not been seen from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. Now put yourself just real quick with me. Just imagine. Get your imagination cap on and go back and be there with the disciples. Just imagine that. You're standing with the disciples and Jesus is talking about those days. What are the those days? What does he mean? Well, what he means is those future days when the disciples were hearing this, all of it was future. When we're reading about this, some of it has already happened. But when the disciples were listening, this was all future. And so what I think that is meant by that tribulation that he talks about there in verse 19 is not only what happens when the temple is destroyed and when Jerusalem is under attack, he's talking about a new age, a new era where there will be heightening tribulation. That there will begin and inaugurate at the destruction of the temple a new age of tribulation, which I don't think is the final tribulation, those of you who know eschatology, but it is a part A tribulation that is going to be inaugurated with the destruction of the Jerusalem and the scattering of the Jews, and there will be no central place of worship for the people of God, for the Jewish people. That tribulation that he's describing there, I believe, continues to this present day and we're in it. And there's still a coming tribulation that is greater that's yet to come because he is speaking of 70 A.D. and the events that happened with Titus marching on Jerusalem, but he's also speaking of the future tribulations of the age to come. Verse 20, look with me, verse 20. It says, if the Lord did not cut short the days, no human being would be saved Now, this doesn't mean he makes the days 12-hour days instead of 24-hour days. He's saying if that tribulation just kept going on and on and on and on and on, it would get so bad no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, for the sake of God's chosen, for the sake of God's beloved, he shortened the days. In other words, there's an end to the tribulation that the people are going to go through. Verse 21, he reiterates the demand or that they should be aware of being deceived by watching out for false Christs. In verse 23, he reiterates, be on guard, be aware. And that's when he enters into discussing now distant future. Look at verse 24. And this is our third point. Our first point was a warning for the disciples. Our second point was a sign for the disciples and now we have a Savior for the disciples in verses 27 or 24 to 27. Read with me. But in those days after that tribulation, now I think he's meaning by that tribulation, the whole time that starts with Jerusalem and ends all the way until the coming of Christ, that whole period after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Now that is talking about the specific great tribulation that is described in more detail in the book of Revelation. That's when the cosmic signs begin to happen, and the most devastating tribulation comes upon the world. There's going to be no light. Look at what it says. The sun's going to be darkened in those days. What happens when the sun goes out? The moon then will also not give its light because the moon only reflects the sun's light. Stars falling from heaven. It would be hard to imagine what that would even look like. What would that even mean? The powers in the heaven being shaken, you would look up into the night sky And it would be a chaos of lights, little stars shooting here and there and everywhere, but blackness because there's no sun, because there's no moon. And it's out of this darkness, verse 26, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. What an amazing sight. You say, well, how will they see it? There's no sun. How will they see it? There's no moon the pitch blackness of the extinguished sun and there's no moon to reflect the sun's light, how is it going to be visible? It says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, that he will be revealed with his mighty angels in flames of fire. And so the return of Christ will be lit up with a blazing glorious fire so that all those who look or live upon the earth will be able to see him. Every eye will see the returning Jesus Christ. He will see him. They will see him in the clouds, it says, coming with great power and glory. All his mighty angels will be with them, the multitudes upon multitudes. Thousands upon thousands returning with Jesus Christ. There will be no one who will miss it. This is why Jesus said, don't get caught up with false messiahs. Because when the true messiah comes, no one will have any questions whether he's legitimate or not. Every eye will see Him. Everyone will know Him. All the questions you had about whether Jesus was right or wrong, whether He was God or not, whether He taught was real or true or in error, will all be answered as they see the Son of Man in blazing glory, followed by the heavenly hosts, the multitudes of angels, and they will recognize who He truly is. I mean, can you imagine this? I mean, this is the kind of stuff that ought to make us just grow in our alertness, in our zeal, is to recognize, listen, the world will come to an end. This world, we often think, we don't articulate these thoughts, but they come into our minds, is it seems as if we just live this life as if it's a constant repeating of events People are born, they live, they die. People are born, they live, they die. On and on, generation to generation. And it will go on till kingdom come. Actually, I shouldn't say till kingdom come because that's true. I should say it just goes on and on and on and on forever. That this world is cyclical. It's just happening again and again. And there's no end in sight. And we live without thinking about the end. We live without acknowledging the end. But listen... Your life is like a story, and this world is like a story, and there will be a glorious climax of the story, and a glorious conclusion of the story, and it will all come to an end. The Son of Man returns in power and glory. If you want to see that, what that looks like in more detail, I want to encourage you to read Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 11. I'll read it to you. John has the vision of this glorious return of Christ. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him. Do you see this? The glorious hosts of heaven, white and pure, following Jesus as he returns... To earth, they're following him on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He will come, and he will judge and he will strike down the nations, and he will establish his kingdom. The end of the world's church will come. His first coming as a baby was quiet. Only a f- small number of shepherds were made aware of it. It happened in complete, almost complete, and total obscurity. But Jesus' second coming will be loud, unmistakable, And global, and the entire world will see Jesus Christ, and all Christians who have been mocked and ridiculed through the ages will be vindicated as Jesus righteously judges all. Verse 27 then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Every last believer, every last one of his chosen children will come home. You're in that group, church. Those of you who have trusted Christ, you will be gathered up with him. You will be brought to be with him. All that is wrong will be made right. Everything broken will be fixed. Every struggle we've ever faced, we will be healed of and relinquished from we will be with the Lord forever when he returns. Not a single one of us will be lost as he ushers in his kingdom, as he reigns forever, and he allows us to reign with him. Some application real quick. For the unbeliever, if you're not a Christian, you're so glad you're here. I would encourage you to consider how accurately Jesus told the future. What he predicted would happen, happened so specifically according to the details he gave. With what happened in 70 A.D. and the destruction of the temple, Jesus does know the future. And what that means is that Jesus is God. And what that means is that you should know him and trust him. And that he, through his death, burial, and resurrection, has provided a way for you to come to God by faith. You can be saved and forgiven come to Jesus Christ. And if you're a believer, you know what you should do is you should worship the Lord Jesus Christ. He will return and he will demonstrate his glory, he will prove his worth. Worship him now. You see life as I've said before is more like a fairy tale than we realize. The king is coming. He will establish his throne. And we, his people, ought to be longing for that day and living with the spiritual alertness that is fitting for the coming arrival of the King of glory. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, you are the Lord of history. You're the Lord of the whole world. We confess to you this morning that you are our Lord. Our desire is to please you. So, Lord, we pray that you would grant us hearts that are ready, minds that are fixed on the end. Give us hands that are eager to serve. Give us a spiritual alertness. Awake us from spiritual malaise and enable us to serve you with vigor knowing that You will one day return. And all of our efforts and all of our labors that we've poured out for You will have been worth it. We ask for help to apply these things to our hearts this morning. For Your glory, in Jesus' name, Amen.